Hey everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Locker. It is your host, Rich Cardona. I'm gonna get right into it. This is a short-term world. And in a short-term world, or a microwave society, we expect things to not take very long. And if you are in a transition in your life, or if you are one of the types of entrepreneurs that listen to this show, whether you're trying to be an entrepreneur, whether you are an entrepreneur who's struggling, or whether you've been in the game for a while, we all know the propensity and almost a default mentality to having access to the things we want and to the things we need. But when it comes to building a business or making a major life transition, it takes a long freaking time. So Dory wrote a book called The Long Game. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Dory Clark. She's a top 50 thinker in the world. She teaches at Duke. She teaches at Columbia. She is a prolific speaker, and she is a three-time bestseller. Like, not an Amazon bestseller, like a no-shit bestseller, Wall Street, you name it. So, The Long Game is her newest book, and it came out yesterday, okay? So be sure to pick up a copy, and actually, there's a way for you to win a copy. If you listen all the way through uh, the episode, you will hear what you can do in order to make that happen. Now, Dory and I met outside of Dallas uh, in 2015. I met her at a program put on by Deloitte, which is called the Core Leadership Program. This is for personnel, active duty service members, and military spouses who are on their way out of their respective service. And they are trying to get everything in order. They're trying to make sure they're branded. They're trying to make sure their interview skills are on point. I mean, all, all the things you expect in a much higher capacity than what the military offers you on the way out. Now, number one, the campus was phenomenal. This was all expenses paid. The networking was ridiculous. The food was ridiculous. Everything was fantastic, including all the breakout sessions. But one of these sessions was Dory. Now, Dory at the time was talking about her book, which completely makes sense why she was down there called Reinventing You. And it was fascinating. And there was something about Dory in her delivery style and the way I believed what she was saying because she had been through some of these changes and some of these life experiences that made her credible. Okay, this is before I knew all of her different accolades. Now, a couple years later, I was able to go back down and I actually went in a speaking capacity uh, for a panel and I was thrilled to do that. But at that point, I ran into Dory again. This was the previous podcast. I interviewed her and it was a blast. So then a couple years later, I'm at VaynerMedia and I'm visiting Claude Silver doing some work and I knew that was going to happen. So I asked if Dory would be willing to be on the Leadership Locker episode three. And Dory lives in New York. She came out to meet me. It was kind of a little bit of a logistical mess getting her up upstairs because there was a miscommunication, but we got it. We were in the Nicolas Cage room at VaynerMedia and we did our second actual interview. And then today you have our third. Now I'm telling you this because you don't interview someone three freaking times if they don't have like ridiculous amount of knowledge and value to bring you. Okay, so that is really, really important to know. And Dory, I mean, even since that interview at VaynerMedia, she has not only written another book, she's won a freaking Grammy, she's working on a documentary film, she's doing just so many different things, but she protects her time better than 99.9999% of the people you know, and she is laser focused. In this podcast, you're going to hear how to set your personal goals for a long-term strategy. We're going to cover why you need your own space to think why you need space for creativity. We're gonna talk about how the hell to say no to the things that don't light you up. 
We're gonna talk about setting the right goals, strategic leverage, and then networking. I'm also gonna talk to her about some things people don't know. And this is a question I've been waiting to ask someone and she was the perfect person. I'm talking about all the people who are featured in or on NBC or featured in Forbes or whatever, how that's a pay to play game and what her opinion on that is. So look, this book and this interview should absolutely help you ascertain a mentality to look at the long and not the short. Because here's one thing she wrote and that I mentioned off the bat in the interview, that everything takes longer than we think it will. And if you are one of the entrepreneurs out there who are listening right now, you know that to be true. You already know it. And you know the most successful people always tell you they were never an overnight success. They always, the good ones, tell you about their failures. So let's get into this episode. DM me at Rich Cardona underscore for any entrepreneurial questions or ideas you have for the podcast, because I cannot wait to use those. That is always my favorite. Here we go. So Dory, thank you so much for being on. Uh, as I was just telling you, warming up, I flew through this book and I feel like a better person for it. <laughs> that is very kind. Thank you, Rich. So we're going to talk about The Long Game, which is uh, the new book that just came out this week. And I'm excited for it. But I'm going to tell you the very first thing that I circled and it's in the introduction. And I usually, you know, get into the meat of it before I start taking notes like, oh, this will be good for the podcast. But the first thing that caught my attention was everything takes longer than we want it to. Everything. Why is that in the introduction? And it's, it should be like its own page. But talk to me about that. <laughs> well, practically could have been the title of the book. I mean, ultimately, playing the long game for me, it's the goal of the book. It's not to valorize the fact that things take a long time. It's not like, oh, it's so great. Things take a really long time. I don't like that either. I don't, it would be so much better if things came really quickly when we wanted them. But unfortunately, the the, the hard truth that most of us have had to bump up against is, eh, it doesn't really work that way. Oftentimes for the, the best goals, the most important goals, the most meaningful goals, it really does take longer than we want. And so if we are going to accomplish them nonetheless, we have to, first of all, find a way to reconcile ourselves to that. And second of all, find a way to not give up while that process is unfolding and, and while we're working toward it. So that's really why I wanted to write the long game. Yeah. And I mean, and you did it, you were picked up for it a day before the first COVID case in New York which I, I read this and I was like, she did this in that short amount of time. And now look, I know you're a best-selling author, but I was superbly impressed by the manner in which this just flipped uh, so quickly and the quality of it, of course. So let's talk about the next thing that I came up on. And if you are listening and you hear me thumbing through pages, that's how I got to roll on this one because I have a lot to go through. You were talking about business owners and in, in, this is the white space chapter and talking about saying no that one business didn't want to turn off any potential customers because they tried to be everything to everyone. Now, whether you are a business owner or whether you are an employee or whether you are a family person, talk to me, please, about the downfall, so to speak, of trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah, well, you know, I think most of us 
understand intellectually. You know, we've, we've, we've all heard, especially anyone who is an entrepreneur, an aspiring entrepreneur, we've all heard, well, you know, if you're, if you're selling to everyone, you're selling to no one. And we're like, yeah, 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 we get it. We get it. But then when it comes time for us, we're like, but I might miss a customer. What if I'm turning someone on? That could have been my money. <laughs> and it becomes so hard in, in practice. And so, some friends of mine who I think are really fantastic thinkers about this, uh, Frances Fry is a professor at Harvard Business School, and uh, she and her partner, Anne Morris, wrote a book together a number of years ago called Uncommon Service. And they were trying to explore the question of why it is that so many businesses are frankly just eh, just boring, just average. You know, we all can name our handful of exemplary businesses where everybody gets like super excited and they're like the brand ambassadors. And then most, literally most other businesses in the world are like, yeah, they're fine. <laughs> and so they wanted to understand what's going on there. And the really interesting piece with this you can always get a business owner to say, you know, so, so what do you want to be excellent at? And they were like, oh, great. Let me tell you, I'll be excellent at this or at this. And what they somehow magically assume is that you can get away with being excellent at one or two things and then everything else will just be, well, it'll be fine. <laughs> and the truth is, Francis and Anne discovered, if you actually truly are going to be excellent, if you're going to be outstanding at something, most often you actually have to make a very clear choice to be bad at something else because you need to borrow that time and borrow those financial resources to apply it toward the thing that you want to be good at. So they, they profiled a bank, for instance, that had great hours. It was open really, really late. That was wonderful. But most banks don't do that because it costs money. And so this particular bank, Commerce Bank, decided the way they would pay for it is that they would have really terrible interest rates on their deposit accounts. And that, that was a clear choice. But the good news is they knew their customers. They knew their customers didn't care about that. What they really wanted was the longer hours. And so for all of us, we need to actually be, be thinking, really be honest with ourselves. If I'm going to be great at something, something else is going to slip what can that be and what can I live with? And if we're willing to make those bold choices, then we really can be great. Yeah, I think the interesting thing, as you were just saying that, it kind of like dawned on me, like the long bank hours, right? If I'm picking up my daughter from daycare and I'm like, like she needs to stay at daycare as long as she can. So number one, and two is if I need to go to the bank, a physical bank for some reason, if it, they're open till seven, that works for me. So the trade-offs are both on the customer side and the business owner side. And if you are able to merge those things together where the paths converge, then you're going to be set. Now, also in this chapter, when we're talking about white space, I love that you wrote this. Um, you're talking about saying no, even to good things. Now, you have a couple anecdotes in here, including declining very politely a beautiful trip to a Caribbean uh, location to talk and, and all these things. But you talk about saying no to good things. And one part specifically is when someone wants to talk to you about something and they want to borrow your time. And you have done this uh, masterfully, of course. You know, you protect your time very well. But... You said, I'd love to see if I can be helpful. Can you tell me a bit more about what you'd like to discuss and how I can be useful? Can you talk to me about how that actually flips the script to a certain extent? Yeah, certainly, Rich. And I'm sure you've experienced this too. As, as you get uh, a little bit you know, better known, whether it's within your company or within your industry, there's more people that want to reach out to you, which is wonderful. That's a lovely thing. But we sometimes assume erroneously that these people have 
taken the time to do homework and, you know, have actually thought about it. And the truth is, many people are not like that. They just have the dimmest idea. They're like, oh, wow, I want to... I want to be like Rich. I want to talk to cool people. Hmm, let me reach out to Rich right now and I'll ask him. And we people often have these defaults, right? They're like, oh, well, I'm going to pick his brain. Oh, I'm going to invite him for a meal. But they sometimes just have absolutely no idea. And so, you know, you might have some kind of an admirer that just really misunderstands fundamentally what it is you do. You know, oh, Rich, I want to start a business like yours, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay. Can I pick your brain? <laughs> Can I pick your brain? And they start asking you questions and you're like, wait, that's that's not my business. Like, actually, my business is something totally different than that. And, but, you know, you're already there. You're already trapped. And you've you've wasted a huge amount of time when actually if you would just force them to specify a little bit more, you know, just to check, just to validate that they've taken the time to do it. And they say something to you like, oh, yeah, Rich, well, you know, I, I, I want to have a business like yours where I'm doing blah, blah, blah. And, and you're able to discover the error up front and save yourself that hour. You say, oh, gosh, I really wish I could help you. But that's not at all what I do. So I don't know anything about it, but I'm cheering you on. <laughs> so we, you, you want to spend your time with the right people and you want to spend your time in places where you can actually be helpful. It does not do anyone any good for you to accept meetings with people where you know nothing and are not able to offer value. Yeah, well, then the long game becomes kind of an eternal game because you're literally never gaining any time to, to be focusing where it counts, which is literally the name of the next portion of the book. Now, in, in focusing where it counts, you talk about setting the right goals. Um, if we are in a situation, you and I have talked about this before, uh, way back when I first started the podcast, about misplacing our time and our focus. And, you know, one thing that I've used from you, I've stolen it shamelessly, is, you know, learning is a form of procrastination, and I'm like all over the place and doing this, this, and this. But, can you talk to me about focusing where it counts by setting the right goals? Yeah, certainly. So one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game that I have, have really seen both in my own experience and with the folks that I, I work with, executive coaching clients, folks in my recognized expert community, is that oftentimes when people are feeling frustrated, they're feeling like they're in a rut, they're feeling like, oh, I'm trying to, I'm doing everything, but you know, it's not working. Why isn't it taking? Well, you peel it back a little bit, and what you discover is that oftentimes the problem is that people are, they are working hard, they are doing a lot, but they're doing the same thing over and over again. And unless you work on an assembly line, that's not what's going to get you ahead in our contemporary society. We need to know how to do different types of things and to switch between them and to toggle between them. So I have a concept that I talk about called thinking in waves. And what that refers to is really understanding where you are in the cycle of your professional journey and then making the shift where relevant to the next phase. So as you were alluding to, Rich, the first phase when we're starting out in a new job or a new career is the learning phase where, yeah, soak it all in, talk with everybody, read everything, try it all out. That's great. But if you keep doing that, it becomes a problem because you need to be shifting into the creating phase, which certainly you are, uh, which is how do you give the value back? How do you show people what's on your mind? How do you actually contribute to the conversation so people know that you have something to offer rather than just, you know, being a perennial student? So I want to ask you, this is necessarily a concept from the book, but do you think people don't 
take you seriously when you are not setting the right goals? Meaning I could put out on social media like, oh, I'm taking Dory's course or I'm doing this or I'm doing 75 harder, whatever it may be. And, and what they actually see is kind of a pileup of, of you know, inconsistencies. And I'm not saying that we should worry about what others judge, but it does affect us uh, in terms of our ability to deliver, especially if we're a business owner. What do you think, you know, how, how we should deal with that in terms of the perception we may get if we're setting the wrong goals and just kind of doing the wrong things? Yeah, well, I think you raise an important point, Rich. And, it, and it's true, you know, just as one example, I have spent a lot of time over the past few years uh, really trying to understand the Broadway ecosystem. And so I do investing in Broadway. I do writing, uh, you know, as a lyricist and librettist. And so I, you know, a couple of years ago had coffee with this woman and she was she was in the like, you know, kind of positive thinking camp, I guess. And she was an actress. And she said, I've decided I'm going to be on Broadway this fall. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, did you, oh, you're okay. You're going to be on Broadway this fall. Great. Amazing. You're going to be like acting in a show or you're going to be trying out for a show. No, it's going to be my show. It's going to be a one woman show and I'm going to be on Broadway. And I, I tried to sort of ask these questions like, okay, you, you have, do you have a theater? Do you, you have funding? No, but, and from what I know about how Broadway works, this literally is the craziest thing in the entire world. Like she's smoking crack. You do not, a random person with no funding does not get a theater, you know, in, in six months because you snap your fingers and you, and you want a theater. This literally is structurally impossible in the Broadway ecosystem. And so anybody who is talking like that, I mean, I understand it's, it's sort of like nice vision board kind of stuff, yes. but you, you look crazy and you look ill-informed. And so I think there is a fine line between, you know, you want to understand how, it's really essential, you want to understand how the system typically works. And then from there, you can be as aspirational as you want, you can come up with different ideas or different strategies, but you need to know what is at least common so that you can make strategic choices about what you're doing or not doing. But if you come in and you don't even know and you're ill-informed, it's telegraphing to everyone that you really don't know what you're doing. I think there's some confusion when people do this where there's a blend of it being not only aspirational, but as if some way putting it out into the universe is going to make other people hold you accountable or you hold yourself accountable because you put it out on social media when we all know, um, you know, you could delete a post anytime you want and be like, never mind, I never said that. I want to talk about, um, again, we're still on kind of focusing where it counts and, and having time to explore. Now, you mentioned how Google's one of their philosophies or one of their practices is for the people there to have 20% of their time dedicated to the kind of creativity. And I'm so glad you're like, it's more like 120% because you still have to do everything else. I don't think you're cramming that 20% into your normal duties. Um, but can you talk to me about the 20% uh, concept and, and how that could actually help in terms of your long game journey? Yeah, absolutely. And just to add one more piece to the to the previous point, Rich, I'll just say that you know when it comes to setting goals and your uh, your intentions and, and things like that, there there is a difference. If you are setting a goal over which you have ultimate control, then by all means do it. You know, if you, if you're you know wanting to put it out there for the world, hey, I'm going to do a hundred sit ups a day incredible. You can do that. And so therefore, uh, you know, that that's a totally rational goal. I, I think where we run into trouble 
is that oftentimes a lot of our goals, this is, this is the, the essence of playing the long game. We have to understand that a lot of our goals are unfortunately controlled to some capacity by gatekeepers. And that means that, you know, in, in, unless we have some special superpower ability, they might mess it up somehow. I might, I might want to be able to do, you know, to be on Broadway in, in six months. But if the Schuberts and the Niederlanders and Drew Jamson are not giving me a theater, then I will not be on Broadway in six months. And that's why as long game players, we need to leverage what I call strategic patience because it's understanding, okay, I don't love it that it's going to take longer than I want, or it might take longer than I want, but I will deal with that and I will do what is necessary to get there. So that's that's just a, a piece that I wanted to throw in. Yeah, I mean, that's why, I mean, I'm saying in the introduction, just that one line alone is, I, I, and I'm telling you, since the last time we were in person together, I mean, many, many things have changed radically for me, but part of it is simply the acceptance of, this might be seven years to get to like where I, I see it happening. I'll be very happy if it takes three it might take 10. And I also understand conceptually that there's landmines everywhere, self-inflicted and external. Um, I mean, everyone just went through the pandemic, right? So, so many different things can happen, but the acceptance of it really has this kind of calming quality. Like this is not supposed to happen yet. Uh, it's, a, it's a long game, but uh, now I'm getting us off topic. Sorry, but the 20% rule, uh, if you could talk about that concept, I'd, I'd love to l- know a little bit more. Yeah, certainly, Rich. So, twenty percent time, as as you mentioned, this is uh, this is a concept originated by 3M, uh, the uh, the famous Post-it note company, and uh, it was fifteen percent time for them. Google grabbed it and made it twenty percent time. And I, a point that I make in the long game, is that. I actually believe that whether you work for a company or not, whether you work for yourself or not, we should all be doing this because my my most recent book was called Entrepreneurial You. And in it, I talked about how to create multiple streams of revenue in your business. And this, I think, is important because we want to de-risk our careers as much as possible. Early on, I was a reporter. You know, like a lot of people, I had one job. That was my job. And I got laid off suddenly I had laid off on Monday, September 10th, 2001, which, you know, in, in the history of the world is like a pretty poor time to lose your job when, when, you know, you're out knocking on doors on September 11th. And so I realized very clearly, wow, this is really precarious. Um, I thought I was secure with the one job. Now I have zero jobs and nobody's hiring. And so over time, and it did take a while, I operationalized it so that I now have lots of different revenue streams. You know, it's online courses and keynotes and teaching and coaching and things like that. So that is one way of de-risking your business in your future. But another, which I think is, is powerful for a lot of reasons, it's about giving yourself more access to upside. It's about protecting the downside. And frankly, it's just about making your life more interesting is doing something like 20% time because it's allocating a portion of your time portfolio to new activities and saying, all right, you know, the path of least resistance always is just to like answer your email, right? You have to be forcible in guarding your schedule and guarding your time. But if you are and you protect it, that 20% time, you could be taking courses, you could be learning something. And it's a substantial 
enough amount of time that, you know, you keep doing 20% time for a while, you can actually get kind of good at something. And this is what enables you to be ready for anything, to develop a side skill that should you need it, or if it proves relevant, could actually be really quite valuable to your professional future in ways you can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, when we spoke last time, you talked, you gave me a really good analogy, and this helped me visualize multiple revenue streams much differently than just simply the appeal of adding these things up and being some sort of millionaire. It was more of, a, you know, you gave me a, a stool analogy, like, okay, like, what's a bar stool with one leg? And I was like, okay, video production can't be it. So now, like, here we are in different phases. Now it's like, okay, yes, speaking. Okay, now it's like podcast production. And now I, I have to say, and you said this, uh, I, I believe as well, that it's almost safer to be in an entrepreneurial venture because if you are able to compile those multiple streams of income, you're almost safer than if you were laid off at whatever number one place you were relying on all your income for. Now, there's a, a thinking in waves. You already kind of mentioned it, but this is one of my very favorite parts. And I, I've Dory, by the way, everyone, like she practices all these things as well, but there are anecdotes of actual people in here. Uh, I think a grandmother who became a DJ, an executive coach who went to learn uh, about, you know, how to freestyle and all kinds of people who have became a little bit more interesting by applying some of these principles. So you could believe that, but heads up and heads down, this framework, I love, and I think this, this is probably going to be one of the biggest parts of the interview, but Please talk to me about how we can operate in a heads-up, heads-down framework. Yeah, thank you, Rich. Well, heads-up and heads-down is something that first came to my attention, this framework, when I was doing the interviews for Entrepreneurial U, my previous book. And I was speaking to a guy named Jared Kleinert, who's a young entrepreneur, and he was alluding to, you know, blah, 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 heads-up and heads-down mode. I'm like, wait, wait, you know, tell me more. Tell me more what you, what you mean by that. And what I learned from him, I thought was, was really quite powerful because we all know, right? There are people who tend to skew one way or another. Often a lot of entrepreneurs, especially tend to be really heads up people like shiny object. Oh, I could do that. Oh, I could meet this person. Oh, I could try this thing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's great because, you know, you're, you're an excited person. You're excited about life. That's wonderful. And also, we recognize that after a while, it can be bad because if you keep shifting focus, you're not actually doing the thing. So similarly, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, there, there are people who are constantly in heads down mode. All they do is execute. All they do is, oh, I got to get this done. Got to answer the message. Got to keep going. And, you know, that's wonderful as well. They're getting a lot of stuff done. The big question, though, is are they getting the right things done? They don't even know because they haven't reevaluated it in six years or whatever it is. And so you really have to have both. This goes back to the, the thinking in waves uh, point of view. We need to be effective at learning to toggle between modes. That is how we're successful. And so we need both heads up mode in order to pick the strategy that is the best and the most viable for us and heads down so we can go get it done. When... Uh, and I can't remember where I wrote it, but I was thinking about it. There's a part in here where I wrote in big, bold letters, like, what if I've been doing this for six years? What if you are that person who has realized, like, I've been in execution mode the whole time, but, and I was this person for a couple of years, but not long, but I, I was climbing a corporate ladder I didn't want to climb, or maybe I've been heads up and I've been somehow able to just maintain this business off the thinnest of margins, but I've been doing courses and all these different things. What happens at that moment, that epiphany where you realize like, wow, 
I've probably canceled out everything by the lack of paying attention to the other. How would you try and fix that rhythm of, of doing things just absolutely the wrong way? Well, you know, I would say, first of all, I do believe that every person needs to have both skills. However, we should accept that some people are just going to be better at some or more naturally drawn to some than others. And so if you are an entrepreneur and you actually have a a business, then one way that you can help mitigate against this is, you know, okay, you're the visionary CEO, fantastic. Just make sure really fast that you have an operations-driven COO who can help compensate. And if you are operating where it's like, okay, the two halves of the brain come together, good, then at least institutionally, at least organizationally, you're able to meet both of those needs. And that's really powerful. That's not to say that you get a pass that like, oh, you never have to implement anything, but it means that uh, that the situation largely can take care of itself. But I, I think, you know, the biggest thing this is this is this is like uh, every piece of life wisdom, right? It's like it's like the the old proverb: the best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago. The <laughs> yeah. next best time is today. So we can't dwell that much on like, oh my god, I should have been doing this, I should have been doing that. Well, yeah, you should have been flossing too. Okay, <laughs> but but we can start today, and we have the power to do that, and and that is that is important because twenty years from now, future you will be thanking you. Now, Dory talks about saying no, and I love that she talks about that, but here's a way you can say no, but also say yes at the same time. If you cannot add more onto your plate, you can still say no, but someone else can say yes. And what I mean is a virtual assistant or a team of virtual assistants the same way I have. I got my team assembled using Rocket Station. Okay, Rocket Station is US-based, employees are international, they are virtual assistants who are here to outsource all the things that you need taken off your plate. All the things that you know you don't, you can't say yes to, but someone else can handle for you, whether it's process documentation, whether it's social media management, whether it's emails, whether it's email marketing, whatever it is, you will find them there. Now, I've been through the gamut of finding these online, you know, people out there internationally, and it just backfires. With Rocket Station, you have an extra layer of kind of leadership and protection. And by that, I mean, they have an operations manager who's going to oversee the VA or VAs for you. Not only that, Rocket Station is going to process map your systems and processes for what you are bringing this potential VA on for before you even interview them. And the reason that's important is because you're going to find out how full of shit you are or what you need done. And you're going to really figure that out and narrow it down to a viable product for someone to get on board once you hire them and hit the ground running. And that's what you want. So for all the things you can't say yes to, you can say yes if you know you have the right team in place. And that's why you need to write Rocket Station. They're going to give you 25% off of your process mapping if you write them or schedule time with them and you mention the Leadership Locker and Ridge Cardona. You can email brooks at rocketstation.com or you can go to landing.rocketstation.com. Let's get back to the show. In strategic leverage, um, we're, this is still we're kind of still on the focus where it counts. Now you have a recognized expert community. You know you have standing out. You have entrepreneurial. You there's there's a lot of what you do that really allows people to determine the manners in which to become an expert. Now, if no one has ever heard of you or come across you in my audience yet, uh, I want to read to them uh, what you talk about here, which is the three components of becoming a recognized expert in your field, and it's content creation. Hello, I love content creation. Uh, social proof, 
and networking. Um, I want to touch on the first two for sure, uh, but networking is going to be very interesting because um, you know it's just so slimy and gross and sleazy, and, and you really make some fantastic points in there. But can you talk to me about the importance of content creation and the social proof? I can, absolutely. So as you were alluding to, Rich, over the past decade, I've spent a lot of time really researching the concept of what it takes to become a recognized expert, whether it's in your company or in your field. And there's these three components to it, and they are very much interrelated. They, they feed on each other. And so content creation is basically sharing your ideas publicly. And this becomes so powerful because you know, for, for almost all of us, if, if you are good at what you do, the people who work with you know that, yay, that's great. But how many people work with you? I mean, probably not that many, right? Like a few. <laughs> and it becomes very hard for the world to know that. And so content creation is really useful because it gives other people who have not literally worked with you directly the opportunity to see what you're like, to test drive you, to say, oh, I really like his ideas or, oh, she seems really smart. Wow, I really resonate with that. And it makes it easier for your name and your message to spread, and it de-risks the equation for people who want to do business with you. So content creation doesn't matter. It could be video, it could be podcast, it could be articles, it could be speeches. There's a lot of ways, but it's about getting your ideas out there. This is why I always talk about content creation. This is not me pitching my business or anything like that, but reducing the risk is is part of it. But I also feel the the more people listen to this podcast or see any of your content or my content, then they truly do believe they they got to know you. And if time ever comes where they've read your books and then they get to meet you, then and they see exactly what you're like in person, then it's a refreshing experience that she is this authentic. This is how she operates, and it is not for show. So content creation and personal branding, I believe there has to be an element of vulnerability there, which is funny things in this book that you talk about, and and I love it in the failure section, but that really allows people to not have to imagine or wonder what it is actually like to interact with you, to learn from you, to network with you, to have a conversation with you. And I think that is one of the most undersold things about content creation. Get your message out. It's not who you know, it's who knows you. Sorry, let's get to social proof. <laughs> yes, amen. Amen to all of that, Rich. That's exactly right. And then social proof is, is basically what is the credibility that you are telegraphing to others? We have to recognize that other people are super busy, just you know, just like we are. And it is a lot easier if they are not familiar with you, if they haven't heard of you. It's a lot easier for them just to ignore you as compared to saying, oh, wow, let me take this person and I will do a comprehensive search to evaluate his credentials. <laughs> like, we <laughs> yeah. just don't have the time. No. So it's a lot easier to say, eh, whatever, whatever. And so we need to very quickly, you know, if we're getting in the mind of our prospects or the people we want to reach, we need to very quickly show them, like sort of wave a flag and be like, no, this person's credible. You should really listen to them. And so one of the best ways to do that is to attach yourself to brand affiliations that they are already familiar with. So it could be, oh, well, you know, Rich, Rich's business has served clients, you know, A and B and C and D, and oh my gosh, I've heard of A and B and C and D. That makes a big difference. If he's good enough for them, he's good enough for me. Or it could be, you know, that you've been featured in, you know, X, Y, and Z publications, and oh my gosh, I read those publications. Those are the kinds of markers of credibility that, that people can say, oh, okay, I guess this person's legit. I guess I should at least pay attention for a minute to see what they have to say. I have to ask this. You are the person to ask. You are 
very well published. You write for HBR. You teach at Duke. I mean, you're a top 50 thinker. Okay. But, Dory, you can pay to be in Forbes. You can pay to be a Yahoo top voice. You can pay for people to submit you as someone who should get this award. And I have a client who made a post about this when we filmed last. It was amazing. But can we really talk about the social proof there uh, that the people who don't know, you know, that there is a pay-to-play game out there and there's people who do things like that and then there's people like you? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're raising a really good point. I mean, uh, a number of years ago, Forbes was sold. And since then, they have become the leaders in kind of tarting themselves up. <laughs> Let's be honest. And uh, they, they're the leaders, Mazel, but uh, just about every other publication is not far behind. Not Harvard Business Review, to their credit, but many other publications allow these sort of, you know, pay-to-play contributors. You know, it's sort of the you know, special forum, special voices, uh, whatever. And you can write for those publications and say, oh, I'm a contributor to X publication. And you're doing it for, you know, three grand a year or what have you as part of the different membership packages. And I agree. While I understand that as a former journalist who was laid off as a journalist, uh, while I understand that news outlets need to come up with new methods of monetization, I find this to be really disreputable. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not something that I, that I wish they would do at all. I think that it helps hasten the slide from, uh, you know, in people's skepticism about, you know, oh, you know, fake news. Well, it doesn't help if an institution that used to employ uh, professional journalists and or contributors that had been tightly vetted for their qualifications has now opened up the, the doors, so, you know, to, to just about anybody with a paycheck. Now, all that being said, uh, I would say that, that on an individual level, it becomes that much more important for all of us to really understand and be aware of that market, you know, the marketplace and how it plays out and to know which credentials are the ones that, that matter because you want ideally to be credible to the discerning people who do understand the marketplace. You, you know, you don't want to be the person that's touting the kind of uh, cheap credentials that everybody knows that's sort of like, oh, right, yeah, and then you bought it. Now, there are, um, you know, for these publications, you know, I have many friends who are writing for Forbes. They are not part of the paid uh, system. They are legitimately a contributor. And I think that still matters and is great, but it's just useful to be aware of the landscape, to be aware of public perceptions and to understand uh, that we need to constantly be leveling up in terms of what we're doing because some of these publications over time are going to diminish their own reputations through this practice. I, I completely agree. And, and I had to bring it up only because I, I've seen a lot of posts on social and LinkedIn where, hey, check out my article in this or, or whatever. And I, I've been to plenty of websites of people that I see all the logos at the bottom, but I'm like, something doesn't add up here because the content I'm seeing does not demonstrate expertise or I'm not seeing any video testimonials or I'm not seeing X, Y, and Z. And I believe uh, the one thing I really hinge on for a lot of my clients that social proof and, and a friend of mine, Dennis, you always talks about this. He's like, have a bucket in your Google Drive or Dropbox with screenshots of all your podcast reviews, you know, all your video testimonials, all anything anyone has actually said about you, because I believe that carries a lot of weight. Um, and, and sometimes when you put that against, oh, you know, 
featured in or worked with. It's just kind of like, okay. And you and I had a conversation about this a while ago and I had to redo something so I didn't give off the wrong vibe. And I'm glad we had that conversation. Now, um, I want to get into networking, the last kind of piece of the puzzle here. And it is fascinating, uh, the first part. Now, networking is broken into three parts, uh, that you break it into three parts, but short-term networking is the first. And the very first thing, I was laughing because you said, no asks for a year. Please talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely, Rich. So I have a philosophy, which I share in the long game, and this is what I follow. I actually think that, you know, other other people might find it helpful as well. Because for me, one of the most dangerous aspects of networking is if you are connecting with someone and if you are doing it in earnest, and if that person is kind of a high-profile person, it is not unlikely that they are deluged with asks from a lot of takers, from a lot of people that want things from them. It is really important for the long-term success of your connection that you not be viewed as one of those people. And so I think one of the best ways that you can just totally steer clear of it, like don't, don't let them think that and don't you even get it into the subconscious recesses of your head to go there is just to say no asks for a year. That way, by the time you do potentially ask for something in the future, you will actually legitimately be friends with that person. And then it's not some weird ask. Then it's it's just something that friends do for each other. But, you know, we've all experienced this. If you meet someone and then like two days later, you know, they've, they've apparently spent the past 48 hours going through your LinkedIn feed and being <laughs> like, oh, I see you now so-and-so. Can you introduce us? You're just like, oh God, okay. I didn't really think that was what you were after, but now I understand. And you're really never going to trust that person again. Which feeds into long-term relationships, uh, which is basically what you're talking about, but that's kind of the second echelon of networking. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in the long game, I posit that there's there's really three different types of relationships in networking. One is short-term networking, which is the kind that gives everything a bad name. This is like, you know, the, the person who wants the thing and they want the thing now and we're all grossed out by it. The second is long-term relationships. And these are connections, these are the connections that kind of make sense, quote unquote. These are relationships with people in your field where you're like, you know, they'd be good to get to know. Like, I don't know specifically what I would, you know, what, what I would want out of it, quote unquote, because especially you're doing no asks for a year. So like, who knows, <laughs> but, but there are people in your, in your field, in your orbit, they're doing cool things. And you're like, yeah, you know, that, that could just be helpful. That could be a good relationship. I like their vibe. Like, let's get to know each other. It's a great way to network. It makes a lot of sense. And then the third kind that I feel like is is kind of the wild card of networking, but often where you can really get some cool surprises that are worthwhile is what I call infinite horizon networking. And this is the kind that a lot of people, a lot of professionals that are maybe more directed by what is useful, what should I be doing, they're not going to do this because infinite horizon networking is with people that honestly there's no reason you should be talking to them. They're kind of random. They're in a different field. They, you know, they're just like, they're, they're doing weird things. It's not like, oh, well, I'm in real estate and she's in real estate. It's, you know, no, it's like, oh, and they're an astronaut and, you know, I run a dog training school. Like, you know, it's just very, very different. On the surface, people might say, well, that's a waste of time. That's not relevant. And I want to say that's exactly why you should connect with those people because number one, 
Life is long. You never know where it's going to go. Um, your worlds might converge in interesting ways. Number two, your world might even change because of that person. So they could teach you a lot of interesting things. And number three, never hurts to have interesting friends. So I, I'm a fan of Infinite Horizon networking. I feel like it's underutilized and I would encourage people to think more about it. I went to podcast movement recently in Nashville and I hadn't been to a conference in quite some time. And conferences give me just the wrong vibes sometimes. It, it's just a little, it, it's kind of like going to Vegas. There's just a lot of stimulation. There's a lot of hallway talk and people like have a strategy for hallway talk and there's people collecting business cards. There's people trying to sell you and there's people who, who literally just go to networking. And if you are listening to any of the keynotes or the MCs, they are going to say like, yes, we're teaching you all these things, but the real good stuff is the networking and the people. How do you delineate between kind of purposeful networking with others in, in your industry or just people that might be an asset to you with just trying to just meet people and have a good time and ingest, ingest the information that you require and not really having to go after any relationships? Yeah, well, I've certainly been there, Rich. I mean, there's there's a lot of conferences that that I go to as well, where there's a lot of cool people. And there may even be some, you know, quote unquote, celebrities in the room that everybody wants to meet. And, uh, you know, some of them are literal celebrities, and some of them are just kind of, you know, industry celebrities. But but nonetheless, you know, there's there's always these like hierarchies around. And at first, when I would go to the conferences, I would I'd be so deliberate and specific. I'd be like, oh my God, I have to meet this person and this person. And it was like I made an agenda for myself. And after a while, I just realized like, okay, first of all, that's exhausting. And second of all, you know, I didn't want to be Again, you know, you have to you have to really just stop yourself and be like, okay, how do I want to be here? And I didn't want to be the person that was like so, oh my god, I have to meet this person that you're like constantly craning your neck like is he here now? How about now? <laughs> and so what I what I settled on is I would triage at a given conference, you know, maybe two or three people that I was like I would feel sad if I left the conference if I didn't meet this person. And then for those people, I would come up with a, a more precise strategy. Like, okay, I'm definitely going to go to their talk. And usually the best strategy is to, is to grab them before the talk because they get mobbed after the talk. But, you know, whatever it is, I would try to find a way that I could at least say hi to those people. But for everything else, I just, I just let it go. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to have a good time. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to see where the moment takes me. And I'm not going to get too worried or wrapped up in it. Because if you have a list of 25 people that you must meet, you're going to be running yourself ragged. And uh, it's not going to really be a good outcome at the end. Yeah, I think um, kind of the infinite... Uh, I'm sorry, the Infinite Horizon. Infinite I Horizon, yes. yes. The infinite horizon. I, I feel like, unbeknownst to me, that kind of strategy and that just uh, curiosity of meeting interesting people that have nothing to do with anything I know sometimes like opens these channels in my mind uh, that are just kind of exciting and new and refreshing. And I don't know anything about it, so I, I don't feel weird asking deeper questions. It's clearly out of curiosity or just being naive to what it is. And many of those have turned into just fascinating relationships, which you talk about how you started dinners and things like that and connecting with people when you were alone in New York. And it's just interesting that when sometimes you don't have to be purposeful for something to become valuable. Uh, and, and I think that's that's a really good way. Now, I want to talk about failure, rethinking failure, which this is probably, you know, one of the most important takeaways from the book. You have, uh, I don't want to say a litany, but 
you have a pretty good list here of things that did not work out in your favor. And it was funny, every paragraph, I didn't pick up on it till the last one, by the way, I was like, wait a second, this didn't work out? Uh, the talk and the list and all these different things, I was like, what is happening? And, and I felt almost bad, but I already know you, so I knew things were fantastic. But you had, I would say, um, sequential losses until something kind of worked out in your favor. But enduring them was pretty painful. And long-term thinking and a long-term approach is what actually kind of probably manifested this last success, which is something you des not desperately wanted, something you really wanted, which was to be a top thinker. Can you talk about rethinking failure and how some of those failures shaped your success? Yeah, thank you, Rich. So, you know, what you're referring to is in the long game, I have a, a chapter where I talk, uh, I basically break down my, my 2019. Uh, so this is, this is pre-COVID. And I had a number of aspirations for the year. I started the year and I had these five goals. And it was, it was things like, you know, writing a book with a, you know, co-authoring a book with a big author or getting to uh, write, uh, to get, get the musical rights and be able to create a musical based on my favorite movie and giving a big talk at a big conference, you know, all these different kinds of things. And they were all attainable goals. They were big goals. They were stretch goals, but they were all attainable. I mean, the author said yes, that he, he'd do the book with me. I, you know, the director of my favorite movie said yes, that he would let me adapt the musical. I, I actually, well, I got approached by a major media outlet about becoming a regular columnist. And, you know, they were coming to me and asking me to try out. And, you know, so there were big things, but it, it was not, it was not like crazy, like I'm going to join the NBA. They all really could have happened. But then over the course of the year, over the course of 2019, literally every single one blew up for different reasons. You know, the, the media outlet decided, no, sorry, we're going to go with somebody else. The movie director like we went for months down this garden path. My collaborator and I were even, you know, we, we had started writing music. We had come up with an outline. We'd come up with song themes. And then finally he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I think I want to do a play, not a musical. <laughs> you know, I'm like, ah, you know, all these different things. But, you know, the, the famous author got a million dollar book advance uh, to do a project with somebody else. I mean, I'm not going to begrudge him that, but like, yeah. you know. Yeah, you were like, I, I understand. See ya. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, anyway, uh, it was, it was a lot of things in a row where I was just like, Oh, come on. <laughs> like, why are these not working out? And so literally up to the end of the year in late November, finally, the last, the last goal that you're referring to, there's this organization called thinkers 50, and they do a ranking, a biennial ranking of the world's top 50 business thinkers. And I made it onto the list, which was very exciting for the first time. I was named one of the, one of the world's top 50 business thinkers. And that was really great. Uh, but yeah, over the course of the year, four out of five of these big goals completely tanked. And during that time, it really, it really can be depressing, right? One of the things that I say in the long game is that when you are in that stretch between wanting to do do something, you know, like articulating your goal and then actually achieving your goal, it's basically like you're going through a tunnel. And in that dark tunnel, it is almost impossible in the moment to tell the difference between something that is not working and something that is not working yet. And that can be very existentially hard to deal with. Let me ask this. These were accomplishable. These are things that absolutely can happen. These were not, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals per se. Uh, like you said, they were doable. How much more did it sting uh, when they didn't happen? Because I think for, for people like us who are maybe used to productivity and, and used to kind of surging and at least 
incrementally just getting better and better in our crafts, especially the one where you had to submit writing samples and it didn't work out. That was hilarious to me because I was like, how did that not work out? This is ridiculous. If it's something you know you can do and it still does not work out, it probably hurts more. How do you make amends with that? Yeah, I think I think in a lot of ways, honestly, I I just reverted back to understanding that a lot of life is random, right? Like especially this this is really a key point, Rich. A lot of goals have some kind of gatekeeper attached to them. And the part that we can control is our process. You know, did I submit the best writing samples I could? Well, I I I really tried. I I, you know, went over them a million times, I edited them, I polished them up. I felt good about what I could do. What I couldn't control was the guy on the other end reading them who said, we want something a little more irreverent. <laughs> like, I just really can't do anything about that. They ended up they ended up bringing in somebody else who, like, wasn't even a business writer. They were not joking about an irreverent voice. They, they wanted somebody who was, like, um, you know, basically making fun of people. So, yeah, I, I realized, like, okay, I can take it personally to a certain extent. Like, it's just, it's you know, it's slightly insulting that they made me jump through these hoops. And then they're like, yeah, no. But also, they really were looking for something else. I mean, it's like, you can't get that mad if whatever, you know, you want to date someone and they're like, I only date redheads. And you're like, well, but, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I just, I can't change that. So ultimately, I think the main thing is number one, to ensure that we are not prematurely handing our power over to outsiders. So often I see smart, good people get discouraged and sometimes even stop doing, you know, what they're doing because they are like, oh, but, you know, they turned it down. Well, one person turned it down. One person turning something down does not mean in any way that it is not good. Fine, a hundred people turn it down, okay, I might believe you, but one person, two people, that is literally statistically random chance, and we we cannot accept that. Uh, so I just kept trying to remind myself of that, that there are statistical flukes, you know, we're talking about like heads flipping, and okay, this guy didn't like it, okay, well, this guy got, you know, a book deal, and uh, this guy wants to do a play, okay, <laughs> it doesn't mean my stuff isn't good. Yeah, I, I forget who, uh, I, I think it was Patrick Pet David who goes, we get rejected every day. Those people don't read your email. People unsubscribe from your email list. I mean, it happens more often than we think. And, and once I had that kind of context, I kind of defaulted to what you're kind of thinking of like, okay, this is someone's decision, not the universe's decision per se. Um, the last question I want to ask uh, before uh, we close here is a, a really tough question, and, but I think it's really important. And it is, when you are in that tunnel, like you said, when you can't tell, you know, whether you're making progress or not, when do you know if it's time to actually quit? Yeah. So there's a few things to keep in mind. One of the most important is that in that tunnel, you almost can't trust yourself anymore. <laughs> so true. Because you just have to realize that like your judgment's a little bit shot and it, it tends to go one way or another 
oftentimes it, it goes in both directions at different times. One way is you get so frustrated. You say, oh, this is never going to work. This is, ne- this is terrible. I need to quit. The, you know, this will, if it hasn't worked by now, it'll never work. And you get really depressed. The other way is that you're like clinging to the life raft. You're like, no, no, of course I'm not going to give this up. I'm just like two feet away from success and the pot of gold. And, you know, just, you know, if I just have a little more time, if I just have a little more money into it and, uh, and you get a little, a little deranged in that direction. So I think that one of the things we need to do is actually in advance, create a group of people, you know, sort of a mentor board of directors around you who you trust. And, you know, you really say, okay, I trust a, that these people care about me and B that these people actually know what they're doing. That it's not just like somebody who thinks, oh, rich is great. And it's like, you know, your mom, but somebody who understands the industry and understands how things work in that industry. I mean, apologies to your mom if she in fact is a podcaster, but, (laughs) but yes. So like, you know, just people who are around you, who are able to be rational voices when we are not rational and they are able to help guide you and say, no, 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 this, this really seems promising. You're onto something or yeah, maybe time to to pivot a little bit. That's number one. Number two, I'll just say briefly, is I have a concept in the long game that I talk about called looking for the raindrops. And what this refers to is that, you know, we're always kind of fixated a little bit on like the big win, like, you know, the, oh, the big thunderstorm. And, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, raining money and raining success. And, you know, when there's a thunderstorm, right, you're going to notice it. But the the thing with thunderstorms is, number one, they take a while to build. And number two, they very rarely come out of nowhere. Usually there are raindrops beforehand. And a lot of people just ignore them or they, 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 they don't notice them. We need to start noticing the raindrops. They're the small signs of success along the way that might seem very, very subtle. But if we look for them, we can say, oh, oh, look, you know, okay, I only have 100 people listening to my podcast. Well, all right. But- Last month, only 50 people were listening. My podcast is doubled in a month, right? That's actually, that's that's a positive sign. And if you just fixate on the quote unquote bad news that you're not yet, uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey or Tim Ferriss, then sure, you're gonna quit. But if you say, oh, wait a minute, well, let's let's ride this out. If my podcast audience keeps doubling, that could be pretty good, pretty fast. So let's let's see how this goes. Absolutely. And for anyone who does podcast out there, I've been at that place. And I wish I could have realized this back then. I would do anything to talk to a room full of 100 people. Think of it as if you're in person, because you will have the eyeballs on you. These people are choosing to listen to you. So don't take it for granted. Those numbers will get better. Dory, what I wanted to do is uh, tell the audience here, obviously, they could find the book on Amazon. Where else can they find you? Thank you so much, Rich. Well, the book, again, it's uh, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And uh, yes, they they can check it out on Amazon and other places that books are sold. And for folks who are interested in these concepts and want to apply them to their own life and become a more strategic thinker, uh, we have the free Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash thelonggame. 
Perfect. Uh, so this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I've known Dory for years now. I met Dory when I was on my way out of the Marine Corps and I thought everything was going to be okay. And then it turned out to be this visceral disorienting experience. And we have managed to stay in touch uh, and have meet each other, be on podcasts and all these great things. So what I want to do, because I, I really truly support Dory in, in the highest capacity is if you go ahead and leave a review of this episode on the Leadership Locker, I will send you a copy of The Long Game uh, you can email me a screenshot and I will get it to you. I promise you that if you are someone who I say this podcast is for, an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned entrepreneur who who really has those doubtful moments and needs to remind themselves that nothing happens. Uh, this is a microwave society. We want everything done pretty quickly. Uh, this book is going to help you realign and, and, and get focused on the long game. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And Dory, thank you so much. Rich, thanks. Great to be here. All right, everyone. If you listen to Dory, Definitely do yourself a favor, write her, just send a thank you. She's someone you want to follow, you want to know, and she just always puts out the goods. Now, I mentioned some of you are going to get the long game. So follow the directions in the podcast and whoever wins, I will announce here and you will get a copy of the long game. Now, if you want your own copy, go ahead and do so. If you want to look at some of Dory's previous books, which are ridiculous, check them out. It's Reinventing You, Stand Out and entrepreneurial you. Okay, these are all fantastic. Dory is, I, I know she has a team, but it doesn't seem like she operates with a team. So she's like, she's really a really fantastic example of kind of a solopreneur who's making so many different things happen. And she is obviously all about multiple streams of income. She teaches you in so many different ways across these books, not only how to stand out, how to get your business together, how to get different revenue streams, and obviously in this book, how to play the long game. Now, if you know someone out there right now who is very focused on the short term and you know that they need a little bit of a kind of boost to remember that this is a long game and it's going to take a long time and there's ways that you can train yourself to remember that and implement that, then share this episode with them. Do me a favor, share this episode with that entrepreneur or with that person who in their general life doesn't need to be business, needs to remember that things take time. We'll see you next time.